Welcome to the second half of the two-part interview with Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr. on the Seneca Podcast. Seneca is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China through our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. Sign up for SupChina's access program to get premium content, including early ad-free versions of this podcast, as well as discounted or free admission to our conferences and live podcast recordings. SubChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me remotely from balmy Fiji in the South Pacific is Jeremy Goldcorn. but as he'll surely attest, this interruption of his holiday is well worth it and far, far more interesting than anything he could have been doing, right? Right, Mr. Goldcorn? Yes, indeed, Kaiser. There is nothing I could, uh, I would rather be doing uh, this fine morning in Fiji than speaking to you and uh, Ambassador Chaz Freeman Jr. <laughs> so we are very fortunate as students of contemporary China with a keen interest in U.S.-China relations to be able to speak now uh, for the second part with someone who was present at the creation at the very beginning of what really is the present chapter of the relationship, which began with the dramatic opening to China engineered by Richard Nixon and his national security advisor Henry Kissinger. Ambassador Charles Freeman Jr. was President Nixon's interpreter on that history-making visit and today we'll talk about that and about much much more. Ambassador Freeman, Charles, welcome back to Seneca. Glad to be here. Chaz, I mentioned at the end of the show last week that I had been perusing the transcription of that oral history interview that you'd done 23 years ago with Charles Stuart Kennedy, uh, and that, among other things, your ancestors actually came to America in 1621, which is like a year after Plymouth Rock, and that you've got quite some illustrious ancestry, including John Adams, John Quincy Adams, John Winthrop, I guess who was the governor of Massachusetts Territory, uh, and uh, more germane to this conversation, I also learned that you discovered while at Yale that one of your great-grandfathers had actually taught at Tsinghua and at Lingnan University, and that Sun Yat-sen had actually stayed with your maternal great-grandparents at some point when he's in the U.S. And, and there's even some, some China connections, other China connections uh, that go pretty far back. You'd learn that your ancestors were uh, New England ship owners and ship captains, captains who were involved in the, in the China trade. Uh, actually, John Pomfret's book, I don't know if you've read it, The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, uh, in the early chapters of, of that book, he, he talks a little bit about that, uh, some really good stuff. Uh, was this part of what got you so profoundly interested in China? Actually, it wasn't. Uh, three of my great-grandfathers worked in China. Oh, wow. Um, Chaz Wellman, after whom I'm named, uh, was one of the uh, perfectors, if not the inventors, of the open-hearth steel furnace. And he was hired by Zhang Zhidong to mon- help modernize the Part of the Chinese, self-strengthening uh, movement. Yeah, Chinese steel industry. Um, John Ripley Freeman was uh, the most uh, noted hydraulic engineer of the age. He did teach at Tsinghua. He also worked for Sun Yat-sen for six months and was the original designer of what's now the Sanxia, the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, And finally, Robert Ezra Park, who was a pioneer sociologist, uh, helped start the social science school at Beida, uh, Beijing University, uh, and did later teach at Lingnan. So there was a China background to be uncovered, but my interest in China came when I was reading world history, and thinking about global affairs, this was the early mid-60s, and we had what I thought was a very unbalanced and unsustainable geopolitical structure in the world. 
And I thought the United States would have to reach out to China. And I wanted to be there when it happened. And when I came in the Foreign Service at the end of 65, that is what I said and tried to do. Uh, but I knew that learning Chinese was not going to be easy, and I wasn't sure that I would fit the career. Uh, so I asked to be sent somewhere on the rim of China for my first assignment. Anywhere but India, I did not want to go there. So, of course, they sent me to India. I learned <laughs> Tamil um, well enough to get up and do a speaker's introduction in it and uh, uh, fought to get into the Chinese program and finally did. Uh, let me get one little anecdote from when you were, this was a gem, when you were in India, uh, you had been invited to the home of a prominent politician in Tamil Nadu. Uh, and, of course, he was a Brahmin. You, being a Westerner, were of no caste. What happened at that, at that dinner? Well, I was actually there to have dinner, but also to retrieve some books that I had loaned him. Uh, I forgot the books uh, after dinner, started home, and then came back to discover a Brahmin priest uh, spreading cow manure and cow urine around the places where I'd been. And polluting and To purify right, uh, right. the place, which I had ritually polluted. Chaz, <laughs> <laughs> uh. when um, you were in Taichung, you were a very dedicated student of Mandarin. In the oral history interview Kaiser mentioned, you described doing nine and a half hours of Mandarin a day and also deciding to learn Taiwanese. So you clearly connected with the Chinese language and find a lot of joy in it. What is it about Chinese? And did you feel the same passion for, say, Tamil or Arabic when you set out to learn that? Well, every language gives you a different window on the world. Um, the way you think about things um, changes, gives you a new perspective. And Chinese is particularly interesting, I think, because of the absence of tense, number, and gender, and also the precision of, uh, you know, resultative uh, uh, verbs, if that's the word. I'm not sure about Chinese grammar. Give us an example of... Uh, uh, sort of shwobulai, uh, uh, or, you know, or bambuchilai, or, you know, there are various... Uh, the, the way these words are put together is very interesting. And it's very agglutinative. It's actually, once you get onto it... Um, I found, for example, in later participation in U.S.-China military dialogues that I couldn't understand the U.S. military who speak acronyms, um, but I could understand the Chinese uh, tr interpreting of those acronyms because they were, they were clear. One of my favorite science fiction novels begins with the statement about page three that um, uh, the Pentagon had had to be uh, pulled down when it was discovered that Acronyms cause cancer. <laughs> what was that book, by the way? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> what about uh, the other languages? I mean, what was the window open to you by Tamil or by, by Arabic? Uh, well, Tamil, I'm not sure at this point. I've forgotten all of it. Um, Arabic is very interesting. Uh, it's obviously non-Indo-European. It also handles time and space differently than Indo-European languages do. But to me, the most interesting thing was that since it is rooted in the Judeo-Christian religious background, so much of the thinking and the expressions are parallel to those that uh, we use in European languages. Arabic, of course, is a Semitic language. It's uh, based on a triconsonantal root system. And you can make up uh, wonderful words. I remember 
first time I was reading a, a newspaper, a Yemeni newspaper, commenting on the late uh, Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz, uh, the Saudi defense minister, they, there was a word in there, Mustaklab, and uh, I couldn't think what that was. And then I parsed it, and what it means is someone who's trying to become a dog, which is a terrible thing in Arabic, and <laughs> failing. He was not quite able to do it. So this, you know, the total loser um, concept. <laughs> well, that's an inventive word, and I guess you can do it in Hebrew and Amharic, too. Well. Wow. Fascinating. One of the, uh, the the details of your Taiwan days that really leapt out at me. Uh, you actually sight translated the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy into Mandarin for your children. I mean, Christ, I have enough trouble trying to explain you know, some of the basic story elements, you know, to my my wife in, in Chinese. It's that's it's just unbelievable. It's well, I, we've had a habit in the family for years of doing two things. Uh, five generations on my mother's side spoke a foreign language at the, at the dinner table on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, my kids, we gave up English uh, for the two-year period I was in Taiwan. My kids went to Chinese school. We all spoke Chinese. And we have a habit also, a second habit, of reading before going to bed. So I would read out loud. Well, what was I going to do? I love The Lord of the Rings. and for, It's much better in English than it is in Chinese, I will tell you. <laughs> Um, but it's you know I was using reading aloud both to learn where my Chinese had gaps mm. that I would have to remedy and and also to give the kids uh, uh, a good story. So we started off with The Hobbit mm-hmm. and went forward. And um, I'm not sure that they particularly liked all this, but anyway, they they suffered through it. <laughs> okay. Wow. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty wet hole, nor a dry, bare, sandy hole, but a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Uh, there you are. <laughs> Chaz, another very curious um, thing we have learned about your Taiwan days uh, is that the Kuomintang apparently tried to recruit you at one point, um, and not just recruit as in make you an agent. They actually wanted you to join the party, if I'm not mistaken. Could you talk about that? No, that's true. Um, in the language school in Taichung, uh, there were two KMT cells. One was linked to the provincial um, party and the other to the national party. Um, and uh, everybody was surveilling everybody and so on and so forth. And uh, I wanted to immerse myself in Chinese society, so I joined uh, a group called the Jiren Hui. Um, that is the Association of Illustrious Personalities, um, and learned a lot about how Chinese uh, run meetings and uh, manage decisions. Uh, everything's pre-cooked. Uh, well, you, you know that. No committee ever decides anything. Um, uh, anyway, they kind of liked me, I guess, and um, uh, I, thought, I think they thought I was going to go somewhere, and um, they just asked me if I would like to join the party, which, of course, I didn't, and... Uh, was rather amused by. So, um, yes, that happened. <laughs> uh, so language and, and precision in language is of vital importance in diplomacy. Uh, so as I read your account, it struck me that your having worked as a translator as an, and as an interpreter uh, and having studied language and gained proficiency in multiple languages 
taught you to be very attuned to nuances contained in language, to connotation, to picking out normative and prescriptive language. Uh, coupling that with legal training, you did end up finishing your degree at, at Harvard. Seems like a, a very good combination for a, a career in diplomacy. Uh, would you agree? And, and and maybe what advice would you, you give for a course of study that would, would sort of naturally lead one toward a career in the Foreign Service? You have to be well-grounded in your own culture. Um, you have to be a cultivated person, uh, have shoyang, if you will, uh, in order to approach other cultures. Uh, you have to cultivate uh, an eye for the other person's viewpoint. You need to have empathy, not sympathy. That is to say, you need to understand where the other person is coming from. You don't have to agree with that. Uh, but if you're going to persuade someone, and diplomacy is essentially uh, an art of persu persuasion, uh, you have to know uh, what they fear, what they like, what they aspire to, what they detest, um, and what motivates them, and what um, what experiences are likely to resonate with them. Uh, so, um, uh, essentially, it starts with trying to master your own country's, your own culture's history and and culture. And the objective, I think, uh, of training in area studies, for example, in diplomacy, uh, which is an applied science. It's not, um, it's an art. It is um, not abstract. It's not academic. It is engineering rather than science, probably, a better analogy. You have to aim to be able to intuit what the important person you're speaking to brings to bear on the issues before you. What knowledge do they have? What history do they analogize the problem to? What approach do they take to cooperating with foreigners with respect to that issue? What mental baggage do they have? What stereotypes, what gaps in understanding do you need to help them fill? All this knowledge is necessary to have the right kind of empathy. Empathy comes in two forms. There's your, your basic emotional empathy, what everyone is capable of, you know. Uh, and then there's cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy requires you to know a whole lot of all these things that you just, you just said. Uh, and I think there's a big linguistic component to, to that as well. You, you said something interesting just now. You compared. You said it's a it's a technology, not a science. I, I or an engineering and not science. I remember reading that you had you had said that there's sort of an analogy uh, that the social sciences are to diplomacy as the sciences, the natural sciences are to engineering. Can you unpack that a bit? It's sort of the, the application of social sciences diplomacy. Diplomacy is aimed at accomplishing concrete things. Uh, it's not aimed at understanding the other side or explaining them or explaining what they did. It's predictive. I mean, it depends on prediction uh, as opposed to the analysis of what's already happened. Uh, it's not good enough to understand why uh, the Chinese feel the way they do about um, uh, the so-called sensory of humiliation. You have to understand what bearing that has on future behavior. So I think um, diplomacy is practical. Um, abstract learning, academic knowledge is uh, abstract. It's not, uh, it's not concerned with results. Mm. Uh, so there is a difference there that is, to my mind, like the difference between 
science and engineering, or perhaps science and technology. Technology is, after all, the practical application of science. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Chaz, a couple of years ago, we sat down with Jan Beres of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and she told us some amazing stories about ping-pong diplomacy, about how this shaggy-maned hippie on the American table tennis team named Glenn Cowan played an unlikely role in initiating the thaw. Uh, but there's obviously a backstory to ping-pong diplomacy. You have said that this was not the beginning of the diplomatic initiative that would eventually lead to the Nixon visit, the UN seat change, and eventual normalization. But instead, that ping-pong diplomacy was the culmination of a lot of diplomacy, and not, not all of it was even known to State Department officials. Can you tell us about the earlier signs, like Richard Nixon's foreign policy piece in 1967, and the laying down of diplomatic foundations that actually made it possible for Glenn Cowan to step onto that bus in 1971? Well, I think the article, the 1967 Foreign Affairs article, was crucial because it pledged uh, Nixon, if he were elected, to try to come to grips with the reality of China, which, of course, the United States had assiduously ignored and denied. We didn't like the outcome of the Chinese Civil War. We uh, spent uh, two decades uh, enforcing the fiction that uh, the government of China was in Taipei, not in Beijing. And so uh, that signal and the selection of uh, Henry Kissinger as a national security advisor were very important. Uh, that was a very important conjunction of events. Anyway, uh, Nixon's uh, forecast of what he would do as president was borne out with a lot of clandestine signaling through um, third parties, Pakistan, Romania, others, uh, to the Chinese, that, uh, and also... Uh, at the Warsaw Talks. Uh, remember, we had a series of 136 ambassadorial-level talks, first in Geneva and then uh, in Warsaw. Most of them were a waste of time, frankly. But the last uh, couple of talks conveyed the essence of what uh, became the compromise on the Taiwan issue uh, that enabled us to uh, move forward with, with China. And uh, Walter Stessel, who was the ambassador to Poland, had to pursue the Chinese charge. There were no ambassadors abroad during the Cultural Revolution other than Huang Hua, who was in Cairo. Uh, so there were no ambassadors. There were only charges. Had to pursue him into the men's room of a hotel uh, in order to convey this uh, message, um, which was promptly responded to by the Chinese, led to a meeting in the embassy. Uh, so there were indirect signals. There were third-party interventions. There were direct contacts. The message at the Warsaw Talks was uh, the president would like to send a special envoy to Beijing. And you were present at Warsaw? I was not. Um, the talk, the first talk where I would have been present was canceled because of Nixon's invasion of Cambodia. Uh, well, you had originally been picked to be an interpreter at, at Warsaw. Uh, I was called suddenly in um, 1970 and, um, and told that that was my fate. Oddly enough, I had, as you mentioned, uh, been working on Taiwanese, and I'd actually started to learn Hakka, too. And I very much wanted to stay in Taipei, which was then the embassy, because uh, it seemed to me that a modern Chinese society, with all sorts of ethnic stresses, uh, identity problems, was arising, and it was fascinating. So the irony is that of all of the students at the language school, I was the one who most wanted to go to Taipei, not Beijing. And I was the one who ended up in Beijing. 
I'm curious about the popular understanding of the the rationale for the opening to China. I mean, people have mainly framed it as being about counterbalancing the Soviet Union, and that's fairly obvious about finding a more practical a sort of a more palatable way out of Vietnam. But you've noted that Henry Kissinger was a great admirer of Prince Metternich of Austria. Uh, he's a guy, I remember I, I had a Metternich quote memorized when I was a kid. He said, against the empty French idealisms of liberté, égalité, and fraternité, we oppose the German realities of infantry, cavalry, and artillery, <laughs> which I thought was a, a, a marvelous quote for somebody with a Germanically derived first name to be spouting. But uh, anyway, he, Metternich uh, was was a, a figure of fascination for Kissinger, uh, as I understand it, and he'd written his doctoral dissertation on him. It became a book, A World Restored, uh, and it was really through this lens that you say he approached China. Uh, quoting you here, Kissinger and Nixon intended with China to do much the same as Metternich had done with revolutionary France, namely to pull the fangs of the revolution and to entangle the revolutionary power in the status quo so thoroughly that it no longer thought of overthrowing it. This seems to be much more farsighted and, and ultimately quite successful, I mean, more successful than just a, a, a kind of strategic triangle approach. Yeah. I think the relationship started off um, uh, really very simply, as you described it. It was an effort to enlist the China mainland uh, in containing the Soviet Union rather than continuing with Taiwan to contain the mainland of China. Uh, it was also an effort to outflank and unnerve the Vietnamese. Um, that was the simple motivation. But once the U.S. and China began to engage, uh, this Kissingerian uh, reminiscence of uh, Metternich's very successful diplomacy, uh, that is uh, uh, the entanglement of uh, formerly revolutionary power in such a way that it became a conservative force, uh, kicked in. Now, please note, um, this is not an effort to change China. It's an effort to change China's foreign policy behavior. Uh, and we followed this model very assiduously. When you look at the early development of the relationship after normalization, uh, which I had the honor of guiding in many ways on the level of detail, you will find that we signed an enormous number of agreements between, for scientific cooperation, for example, uh, between different bureaucracies. Well, the idea was to tie the bureaucracies together to give the relationship uh, a web, a network, a web of uh, fabric that would cause it to be stable. Ballast. Ballast, maybe, yeah, fabric. Anyway, um, the same reasoning, by the way, applied when we established liaison offices. We were very concerned about the possibility of some reversion in China. The Gang of Four was on the horizon. Um, and we wanted to have something on the ground, something concrete that could survive leadership changes. Ironically, of course, we were the ones who had the leadership change <laughs> through Watergate. Uh, but the liaison office, uh, even though uh, the utility of it in immediate terms was not very great, um, did provide ballast to the relationship. Chaz, you know, Henry Kissinger is a fascinating figure, um, hated uh, and loved. Um, but whatever you think of him, he, he is an extraordinary character. Can you talk a little bit about your work with Kissinger and what, what he was like to work with at the height of his power? 
not so much loved as revered, perhaps, for his um, ability uh, to uh, conceptualize foreign policy. Um, uh, he is the exception to the American strategy deficit. Uh, he reasons very clearly on that level. Uh, he is, uh, I think, most of the people who worked with him uh, would agree, uh, not the most charming or pleasant of persons to uh, his subordinates. Uh, he is amazingly charming to those above him, um, and he can turn on the charm to persuade those whose uh, opinions matter. He's a devotee of power and uh, not very sentimental. Um, and I, he's obviously one of the great figures of the late 20th century, and uh, he's still around at age 95 um, and still mentally acute and still very much appreciated by the Chinese. One of the things that was most striking about his interactions with the Chinese that he finally met the kind of minds that he'd been looking for all his life previously. Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, Chao Guanhua, these people thought strategically in much the same terms that he did. And China was truly uh, amazing um, in this early 1970s period. On the one hand, it was totally isolated internationally. There were some international contacts, but they were superficial at best. Uh, it was impoverished. It was powerless. And yet you could talk to the Chinese about the situation in any part of the globe, and they would have an opinion, an informed opinion. Uh, China's always had, uh, or at least this leadership, has always had a global outlook. And that is something that Kissinger very much values. Uh, he was very frustrated in talking with Europeans because by the time he did so, their empires had collapsed and their focus was regional rather than global. Chinese, always global. Let's talk about the China visit then in February of 1972. You were a young man, age of only 27. How did you get picked for the visit and how did you find out that you were going? Huh. Well, um, you have to understand that the Nixon White House, uh, as Watergate attests, was not exactly the best managed place in the world. Um, I had been locked up essentially in the operations center at the State Department writing the briefing books for the president. I'm told I wrote almost half of the briefing material. 47% is what they said. How do they knew that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, an extraordinarily intense experience uh, where I would uh, come home for a few hours and sleep, and while I was sleeping, write papers, which I would then remember and type out when I got back to the, the operations uh, center. But I had no idea what I was, whether I was going on the trip or what I would be asked to do. I found out when somebody shoved a bunch of baggage tags through the mail slot on my front door in Cleveland Park. And uh, somebody else showed me an article in Time magazine which said I was the interpreter <laughs> and got my uh, background all garbled, by the way. But um, that, that was an issue. And nobody told me what I was to do on the way over there, I kept asking uh, all of the Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Ziegler, Pat Buchanan, all these people who hung around Nixon. Um, Brent Scowcroft, who was then a colonel in the Air Force managing the logistics, none of them could tell me what I was to do. So um, uh, we arrived, and um, I had not yet met President Nixon. 
uh, and uh, I stood by. <laughs> you, you briefed him, so you did a lot of the briefing books. Did you brief him in person? No, um, although he did ask for some reading materials, and I loaned him my personal books, which he then kept and put in his library, and that became a an issue of contention later. <laughs> you uh, need to shout over Shan's uh, yeah. history of the Qing, among other things. Really? Yeah. You need to get over there in the Nixon Library and pilfer those back. Uh, I've been thinking about it. Yeah. So what about the briefing books that you read? Are those in the Nixon Library? I'm not sure what's been declassified. Um, uh, this was an interesting exercise um, in format terms two, two, for two reasons. One, there was a rivalry between the NSC staff, which was um, John Holdridge and uh, Dick Solomon, both of them now deceased, and the Department of State contingent that was working clandestinely for Kissinger. I mean, I was writing papers. They would then retype the first and last page to put it on NSC, make it appear that they had written it. We actually invented a special form of stationery to frustrate that so that they uh, wouldn't have the time to retype everything. Um, but uh, the format of the briefing papers was interesting. It started out, what is the Chinese position on this issue? Uh, why do they have that position? What is our position? What should we say? So it started out with empathy, trying to understand the other, other guy's position and why he had it. And that's very unusual uh, in, in uh, at least State Department practice. And I think it was a product of Kissinger's understanding of the importance of that. Uh, his dialogues with the Chinese began with uh, a long review of our respective understandings of the facts and the trends with regard to the issue uh, that we were talking about, and then would go on to ask, well, are these trends good or bad from your point of view? And if they're good, how can we help make them happen? And if they're bad, what could we do to prevent them? Uh, and that then led naturally into uh, the idea of entente, that is an understanding for limited purposes, for a limited time, and not an alliance, of course, uh, not a mutual commitment, more often than not parallel rather than joint actions. Mm. One of the many memorable passages in your oral history interview, Chaz, is about your first act as an interpreter when you were suddenly informed that you would be interpreting at the famous banquet. Can you tell us about that act of defiance and what came of it? Well, as I mentioned, um, I had not met the president. We went uh, directly to Diaoyutai guest house uh, from uh, the airport. I was in a different villa than he. I was called over in the afternoon, and I hoped very much to be told what I was to do. Came in, introduced. There were three of us, actually. I was the lead interpreter. There were two backups. So he came in to see me. Um, his nose was about, he's a little taller than I. His nose was the level of my eyes. Uh, there was a big groove in it and three black hairs sticking out from it. One of them had a blob of Max Factor or some other cosmetic on it. I'd never <laughs> never seen a man at that point uh, made up uh, when there was no TV. But he was, of course, anticipating TV and photographs and was very conscious of his uh, sweaty appearance during the Kennedy ah, right, presidential right. debate. Uh, so all he said was, you know, I've heard of good things about you and glad to meet you and didn't tell me anything about what I was to do. Then he went off 
to see Chairman Mao, who had, uh, as we did not know at the time, not scheduled a meeting in large part because he was deathly ill and on oxygen, and um, they couldn't be sure he would be lucid. Uh, so anyway, he went off without anybody from the State Department, came back. The banquet, in the meantime, was delayed for two hours. As you know, in Beijing, such things are usually 6.30 or so. Um, hmm. uh, this was scheduled for 7.30. It didn't start until 9.30. I was called back to the presidential villa, and um, Dwight Chapin, who was the appointment secretary for the president, came out and said, the president would like you to interpret his banquet toast tonight. I said, fine, no problem. Um, may I see the text? He said, well, I don't think there is a text. I said, well, I know there's a text, so uh, I really need to see it. This is not French or Spanish. And so uh, he went back in, came out, said, no, the president's going to do this extemporaneously. And I said, Mr. Chapin, that is not correct. It might interest you to know that I drafted the toast for tonight. <laughs> um, and I have heard that some, some of Chairman Mao's poetry has been added to my draft, and probably the draft has been changed in some ways. That doesn't bother me. But if you think I'm going to get up in front of the entire world and ad-lib Chairman Mao's poetry from an English translation back into Chinese, you're out of your cotton-picking mind. <laughs> um, so I, I won't do that. You either give me the text or I refuse. At which point he pulled the text out of his coat and gave it <laughs> to the Chinese interpreters, who were equally puzzled about what the poetry was, and I worked with them to try to identify it. And so that evening, sitting at the head table across from President Nixon, he was glowering at me with his jowls shaking um, in an ominous fashion. I thought <laughs> That's easy to my picture. career was finished. I'd be lucky to get a job in the Forest Service in Alaska. And uh, Li Xianyan, who was later president of China, offered me a cigarette. So I know when I started smoking, the condemned man took his <laughs> cigarette. And uh, I smoked for 30 years after that. A um, couple of days later, President Nixon called me over and said he'd heard I was doing a bang-up job in the talks with the Secretary of State and his counterpart, um, and that he'd, he'd been interested in some of the conversations I'd had with Joe and Lai at the head table. Um, and he said, you know, I, I, I want to apologize to you. I shouldn't. And he had tears in his eyes. Wow. I shouldn't have done that. And, of course, the reason he'd done it was that he had something close to a photographic memory. And he liked to appear to be extemporaneous. And he was concerned that I'd get up there with a text, which I didn't mean because I have the same ability to memorize things. Right. So uh, he then said something deeply embarrassing to me. He said... Uh, he turned to John Lai and he said, I'd like you to uh, take note of this young man. Please interpret, he said. So I said that. He said, because uh, I think he may be the first American ambassador to China. Mm. And my reaction was, holy moly. You know, either he's saying you're going to have to wait 40 years till this guy grows up uh, to come here, or he's going to send the youngest and least consequential person he could find uh, to China, and in either case, I don't want to interpret that. So I asked Tang Wencheng, uh, Nancy Tang, who was the other the there interpreter to on the other side, kindly render yeah. that, yeah. which she did. And Joe and I said something like, "That'll be the day," and uh, that was the end of that. Now, uh, Nixon was curious about your conversations at the table with Joe and Lai, and I'm sure our audience is curious about your conversations at that head table with Joe and Lai too. What did you talk about with the premier? 
Well, the main uh, most interesting conversation uh, was about um, the dynastic histories. Uh, as you know, in China, every dynasty is in charge of writing the history sure, sure. of its predecessor. And I had read an intelligence report, which turned out to be wrong, um, that um, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China, had published a history of the Republic of China, uh, the previous dynasty. And indeed, they had drafted such a thing. And um, I went down to the Xinhua Shudian, the New China Bookstore on Wang Fujing, uh, to see if I could buy a copy. Of the 25th of the dynastic 25th history. Of the 25th dynastic history. Or the whole damn 25 histories, if I could. And um, I got, of course, it hadn't been published, and the only thing in the bookstore was Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. <laughs> and um, so Joe and I said, uh, I heard you went to the bookstore this morning. I said, yeah. And he said, you were trying to buy 24 dynastic histories or 25. And, uh, and when we had a conversation about that, which the president listened into as the Chinese interpreted it. Um, and at the end of it, Joe and I said, uh, you know, because you're so interested in this, I'm going to give two copies of the 18th century Bonabon um, to the United States, one to the White House and one to the State Department. It's no, that's still there, right? Still at the State Department Library. Um, I guess the other one's probably in the Nixon Library. So that was interesting. Uh, we also had a nice conversation. One of the interpreters at the table uh, was Zhang Hanshi, who was the daughter of Zhang Shizhao, who was uh, Mao's favorite literary critic. Mm. Um, and uh, Joe gave me uh, three volumes of Zhang Shijiao's, uh writings, uh, and we had to talk about Chinese literature. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Um, I think, you, as you're aware, Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's company, has announced that they're going to be shooting a movie called The Banquet, uh, all about Nixon's televised dinner with Joe and Lai in 72, which, of course, you were attending. Uh, as it happens, my first cousin, Arvin, uh, Arvin Chen, who lives in Taipei, is one of the two screenwriters on that. And I, I dropped them out to tell him that I'd be talking to you, as it turns out, I guess, they've already been in touch with you. Or you've talked to his writing partner, Neville, and you put him in touch with your foster son, Ted, right? Right. Uh, well, thanks for that. What do, you, what do you make of this film project? What have they told you about it? I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, I haven't really heard too much directly from Arvin. Um, and what are some of the more choice anecdotes or, or reflections that you happen to, to share with Neville? Well, um, yeah, this gets us into cuisine. Uh, Joe and Lai was very intent on preserving the traditions of Chinese imperial cuisine, which is a very elaborate, very, very sophisticated uh, uh, culinary art, or arts, I should say, because there are at least four, some people say seven, regional schools of cuisine in China. Um, and Beijing in 1972 was a cultural desert. There were only six restaurants. Uh, he was using the Beijing Hotel uh, kitchen as the place to train a new generation of chefs, one of whom later became my foster son. Um, and I think the film is interested in this issue of cuisine, the reactions of the kitchen staff, the, the chefs, to the challenge of producing food for American barbarians uh, in a circumstance of great importance to the country, 
the meticulous nature of Joe and Lies and his uh, protocol chief, Han Shi's um, approach to trying to match Chinese cuisine to American taste. All of this, uh, sort of a, a docudrama, I think. And um, I find it very interesting. Frankly, Ted was not yet at the Beijing Hotel, so he doesn't know much about uh, what went on, except what he remembers hearing after the fact a couple of years later. But uh, at one point during the dinner, Kissinger remarked on a chicken dish of some sort, and they brought the chef out, who talked to Kissinger about how to do how to make this dish. And of course, uh, the banquet itself was immediately replicated at the best Chinese restaurants in New York. Huh. So there's a story here. Um, what they want to make of it, I'm not sure. Well, in any case, I, I very much look forward to seeing it. So, so not, not too long after the excitement of the Nixon visit, you were posted to the new liaison office in Beijing in 73. Um, but as I understand it, you weren't exactly eager to stay there. Uh, wh- why not? Uh, the experience of setting up the liaison office, uh, the initial two months or so that I was there, was extremely intense. We had a lot of contact with Zhou Enlai, with Xiao Guanhua, with other senior figures in the Chinese hierarchy. A lot of interaction with Chinese, of course, because everything was new and we needed help, and they were extremely helpful. And I, but I was aware that uh, this was the Cultural Revolution, this was an extremely closed society. I remember walking out uh, during that period um, and being accosted by the Nanaijing Cha, the granny police. <laughs> granny police, yeah. Um, the, uh, every neighborhood had a Jiedawei Yanhui, and they were responsible for accosting strangers. There was very little crime in China at the time, not because Chinese don't have criminal instincts, but because they knew they couldn't get away with it. Uh, so uh, I had uh, a feeling that were I to stay, and I was asked to stay either as a political officer, economic officer, admin officer, or consular officer, or just an interpreter, I was, uh, if I were to stay, I, it would be like being under house arrest. Yeah. I had had more contact with Chinese of interest in those two months than I thought very likely the entire liaison office would have with Chinese over the coming years. So I sort of said, uh, no, I don't want to do this. Um, and uh, I'll come back when one of two things has happened. Either China's changed, uh, or I'm so senior I don't give a damn about seeing ordinary Chinese. <laughs> and um, so in 1981, I came out as Charge. Yeah. Uh, which of the things had changed? <laughs> you went well, everything had changed. Yeah. So, so, I mean, China went from black and white to yeah, technical color. Absolutely, the aspect in people's eyes had changed. I I heard a, a great story about you and a British diplomat on a little outing uh, to the Ming tombs. Can you tell Can you tell that little story? Well, it was it. Of course, we were new in Beijing. We Americans, um, we had not been there since 1949, and uh, uh, on the ground, and the Brits had been. Uh, so I was asked by a colleague at the uh, British Embassy, uh, Chargé's office at that time. They didn't have an embassy uh, because they still had a consulate in Danshui in Taiwan, so they couldn't have an embassy. Anyway, uh, their diplomatic mission to go out to the Ming tombs, and we drove out, and there was this motorcycle following us. Um, and with great aplomb, 
the Brit stopped his car, got out. The motorcycle also stopped and pretended to be fixing the motorcycle. The Brit said, you know, I said to this guy in Chinese, you know, I, I know something about motorcycles. Why don't I help you? And he then pocketed the spark plug and walked away. <laughs> so <laughs> this guy, he had done this uneasy. before. He clearly did yeah, this before. <laughs> he didn't want to be under surveillance and he knew how to stop it. You know, of course, other people were out there, but... Uh, but it was a uh, lesson in the somewhat tense relationship that Western residents of Beijing then had with the uh, usual uh, public security people. Yeah, it ain't so easy to do that, to shake the tail anymore, unfortunately. You know, the whole place is wired. Yeah, you don't need a, a motorbike um, because the cameras will <laughs> will get you. Exactly. Um, Chaz, what was the popular reaction to the Nixon opening uh, in Washington at the time? Did the GOP just get right on board, or was there significant resistance among Republicans and other staunch anti-communists? And if I may add just another question, do you see any parallels uh, with the current period where the Republican Party seems to have completely flipped its position on Russia? Interesting question. You've got to realize that we'd been through the McCarthy period and a debate nationally about who had lost China as though it was ours to lose. Uh, and there were people who had, for one reason or another, ideological or monetary, perhaps, succumbed to the Committee of One Million, uh, which was the uh, China lobby, meaning the Taiwan lobby, and uh, were very loyal to it. I think there was the Republican reaction generally uh, was that the president was pretty clever strategically to do this. Uh, so it didn't really face much opposition. But there was great apprehension about what we might do about Taiwan. Of course, you have to remember that Richard Nixon was a, himself a right-wing anti-communist, close to the Kuomintang, um, and that made this all the more extraordinary. When the Shanghai communique came out, it became apparent that we had finessed uh, the Taiwan issue rather than given away anything that was important to the United States, uh, the reaction was very subdued. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the country at large, where the Vietnam War and opposition to it had dominated uh, relationships with the administration, it suddenly became possible for people like me to go out and talk on university campuses uh, to explain the strategic rationale uh, and the realities of contemporary China to people who were struck with curiosity and almost exhilarated by what they'd seen on television, which was not what they'd expected. So conversely, I want to talk about the uh, the mood in Taiwan. So in 75 and 76, uh, if, I, if I have this correct, you were at what was called the Republic of China Affairs Office at the State Department, and uh, you met with officials from the ROC pretty frequently. You made a few trips during that time to Taiwan as well. So I want to get a sense of, of the mood there. You've characterized the leaders in Taiwan as having been you know, in pretty deep denial about the inevitable switch in recognition. Um, maybe tell us about Taiwan during its years in limbo there between the Nixon visit and actual normalization. Well, I'll start with an anecdote from 1971. Uh, when I went to Taipei to the foreign ministry and talked to the senior person responsible for North American affairs. And I said, very bluntly, as is my custom, <laughs> you are very likely to lose the vote in the UN on representing China. 
uh, have you thought about voluntarily withdrawing from the Security Council while staying in the General Assembly? Because people have no objection to Taiwan or the Republic of China on Taiwan. They object to your impersonating a superpower. Uh, and uh, the answer was, Hanze Bulian Li. That is, you know, good guys and bad guys can't uh, coexist. Same, right. And so, uh, and uh, then, Ning Wei Yu Wei Watch Fan. I'd rather be a piece of broken jade uh, than a than whole a tile. Right, right, right. You know, so um, uh, there was this ideological fervor to the Kuomintang that enforced denial, very Chinese. Um, you couldn't deviate from the line. By 75 or so, this was changing. Uh, the Kuomintang had opened up local elections to non-party people. Mm. Competition at the local level politically was over constituency services who could fill potholes, ensure better teachers in the schools, and so forth. Uh, and non-party people began to be elected. The KMT was in the process of being Taiwanized, uh, the Taiwan local Chinese population being integrated into positions of leadership under Jiang Jingguo, uh, the son of Jiang Kai-shek. And the atmosphere was fairly positive. Things were moving in good directions. There was a lot of apprehension, however, about normalization between the United States and China and Beijing, which people in Taipei understood would mean abnormalization of our relationship with them. Uh, China was insisting on the Japanese model. Uh, they had three conditions for normalizing with the United States. Uh, withdraw the military, uh, cancel the defense treaty, and change the diplomatic relations. And um, uh, any one of these was regarded as a major threat to, to Taipei. So there was apprehension. But there was total dishonesty on the U.S. side. No one was willing to talk to Taiwan honestly about preparing for these contingencies. And the one occasion that I did have such a conversation, I was pulled up short by Henry Kissinger. And of course, as a disciplined Foreign Service officer, I then ceased talking realistically about what was likely to happen. <laughs> 75, 76, I should note, was the Ford, Ford administration. Nixon had undertaken to normalize relations in his second, you know, in that period. Right. And he was out of office, disgraced. Ford did not have the political clout to, to take normalization forward, yeah. on. And it was left for his successor, Jimmy Carter, to do. Let's talk about the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, while already a Foreign Service officer, you went back to law school to complete your degree, and you worked on what would become the legal basis for the Taiwan Relations Act. And then after a short stint at USIA, you were brought back to the China Working Group at the State Department to work on the Deng visit and on the Taiwan Relations Act. It's still something that many people don't quite understand, and many have both praised and damned the ambiguity around it. Could you tell us how the Taiwan Relations Act came to be? Well, the major purpose of the Taiwan Relations Act was to allow us to have a normal relationship outside government channels with the society in Taiwan. That is to say, protect Taiwan's financial assets in the United States, uh, allow uh, people from Taiwan to travel here, provide a mechanism for issuing visas, uh, liaison with the authorities in Taiwan. And to do all this, 
through a nominally private organization called the American Institute in Taiwan. Uh, that was the purpose. The Congress added a preambular language in which it purported to dictate policy. And it is that language that everybody focuses on. Uh, this basically did not deviate greatly from U.S. policy um, and the normalization understandings. Uh, and Jimmy Carter, when he signed the law, made it clear that he intended to enforce and implement the law uh, in accordance with the understandings we had with Beijing. Uh, the main element um, in the Taiwan Relations Act that was controversial uh, for China, uh, which didn't understand, we have a federal system. The federal government cannot tell the states that people from Taiwan who work for whatever the name of the organization is at the time have diplomatic immunity. Mm. Um, or that their financial assets can't be attached or whatever. And so in a federal system, you have to have legislation uh, to ex in exercise of the foreign affairs power of the, of the federal government. Essentially, the Taiwan Relations Act is like the US Constitution. Everybody pretends they revere it and nobody's ever read it. Uh, <laughs> they know, don't know what's in it. And what is in it that is of concern to um, uh, Beijing, or was of concern, I should say, much less so now, uh, was the undertaking uh, unilaterally by the United States to uh, provide Taiwan with um, defensive weapons that were adequate for its defense. And the question was, what is adequate? Is this military worst-case analysis? Are we talking about a military balance in the Taiwan Strait? Those of us who were involved with that thought that would not work because a society of 23 million or 25 million, I think at that point less than 20 million, uh, cannot uh, have a military balance with a society of almost a billion, uh, and especially not when uh, the larger society is as dynamic as China turned out to be under Deng Xiaoping. Right. So uh, adequate meant some combination of intent demonstrated intent and policy on the part of the Chinese authorities and uh, military capability. Um, and it was very important that when we normalized relations before the Taiwan Relations Act was enacted, uh, the Chinese government proposed Santong, or three links across the strait, and offered in a letter to Taiwan compatriots a peaceful resolution rather than the military liberation that they had previously so often spoke about. So China changed its approach in part to accommodate American political uh, concerns. Uh, you've said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that despite the fondness you have for Taiwan and your admiration for Taiwan society, uh, you've had to play the role of ogre on Taiwan policy uh, and that it's not entirely inaccurate for you to be seen there as the source of Taiwan's distress. Can you unpack that a bit? What have you had to do to play the heavy there? After the abnormalization of our relations with Taipei... Um, is, that, is that standard terminology? We call it abnormalization? No, but it's, it's your, the reality. It is the reality. Uh, uh, no, it's your um, coinage. And uh, by the way, uh, Taipei sent us an extraordinarily gifted diplomat, Yang Xiquen, who was... Mr. Africa in the Taiwan Foreign Service, uh, Republic of China Foreign Service, um, probably the most brilliant negotiating performance I've ever seen. He mm. had no cards 
to play. He, he manufactured cards. He used his intelligence capabilities, which were formidable, because Taipei had us pretty penetrated, um, to, to incredible effect. And uh, Taipei got much more out of the negotiations than I would have predicted they could. Uh, so anyway, but it was abnormalization, and it was an unofficial relationship, and that was deeply insulting and threatening to the authorities in Taipei. They remembered, nobody knows now, uh, that any time, before we switched diplomatic relations, any time a representative of Beijing showed up at an international conference, we blackballed them. Any time that um, Beijing tried to do anything, we blackballed them. We kept them out of the UN, we kept them out of polite discourse. No Chinese official visited here until normalization, actually, even after the Shanghai communique, um, except uh, on very specialized uh, missions. There were no students here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so um, they knew how abnormal an abnormalized relationship could become. And they were very concerned to introduce what they called elements of officiality to the new relationship well and good. However, after afterwards, uh, they did all kinds of things. They would uh, uh, get mayors to fly their flag over the city hall. Uh, they'd get local provincial, uh, state legislatures to declare a Republic of China Day. In the yellow pages of the telephone books, they listed themselves as the Chinese embassy, uh, and so forth and so on. So they uh, basically did all sorts of things that um, had to be countered. Right. Um, and it would cause endless complaints from the other Chinese in town, meaning the ones at the China, now Chinese embassy. Uh, so uh, I was the country director for China. I had to enforce the, both the normalization and the abnormalization agreements. And uh, inevitably, um, I was seen as the enemy by many people on the Taiwan side. Right, right. Chaz, you headed the China desk at the State Department from 79 to 81, which was a crucial time in U.S.-China relations. Deng had all obviously inaugurated reform and opening at the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress. And at the same time, you know, the U.S. had begun to make it clear that it was interested in pursuing a relationship with China that went just beyond the logic of this of this strategic triangle. It wasn't no, any longer just about containment of, of Soviet uh, expansion. Uh, a, a relationship for the sake of the, of the relationship, and you were part of the push for this new thinking. Can you talk about where you saw China going, where you saw the uh, future of U.S.-China relations, and how that would shape up? Uh, because I think there was some you were pretty prescient, I think, in, at, at that time. Uh, well, first of all, on the subject of where U.S.-China relations were going to go, uh, Dick Holbrook, actually, who was the Assistant Secretary for East Asian Affairs at the time, asked me uh, to do a blueprint, which I did. Um, and the basic objective that we agreed upon was that within five years, we should have had developed the kind of relationship with Beijing that we would have had had we not broken relations in 1949. Oh, wow. uh, a normal, a true normal relationship. Um, and that included things like uh, having attaches in an, in an embassy and um, dealing with... Uh, uh, with military questions on a different basis and so forth. On the question of where China was going, uh, after the third plenum, there was huge skepticism in Washington that anything real was happening. And, uh, and I shared it. 
Around September of 1979, however, I was on a visit to Beijing, staying at the Beijing Hotel, and I walked out toward Tiananmen and got to the corner of Nanshirza, and there was a guy pushing a cart selling noodle soup there. <laughs> I am a great Hong Shao Nero Tang Mian fan, so oh, I bought a um, I bought a bowl of noodles and I talked to the guy and I said, uh, you know, what work unit do you belong to? And he said, Washington, I'm in my own work unit. And I thought, holy moly, there really is a revolution. So I came back and um, nobody else was convinced and I was watching and I saw real signs of change, uh, exhilarating change going on in China. In February of 1980, there was an all-government and many academic um, China Watchers conference at the Smithsonian Castle. And I was the only one there who thought China had really changed and was about to take off and grow fast and change its behavior. Mm. Uh, and I was so annoyed by the consensus that everything was going to get straight-lined from the depressing past that I hopped on my motorcycle, which I then commuted on, and went back to the State Department, stayed up all night, and wrote a memo called China in the Year 2000. And in it, I made a whole series of predictions about growth and social unrest and urbanization and military policy, and uh, circulated it. And I was struggled, almost cultural revolution style, by the CIA and the China Watchers in Hong Kong. The only thing that I got wrong, really, in that, I got two things wrong. First, they accused me of overestimating what China could accomplish. I underestimated it. <laughs> Second, I assumed the Soviet Union would be around in the year 2000. So did they. We were both wrong. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there's a moment of satori, enlightenment, that comes from I guess. Hey, cynical listeners. I know we told you two parts, but we weren't nearly done with all the questions we had for Chaz Freeman, so stay tuned next week for part three, which has some really amazing stuff, including details on U.S.-China military cooperation in the 1980s that I'd simply never heard before and I am sure is going to be new to most, if not indeed all, of you. So Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman Jr. is back with us next week. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever it is you go for your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.